Part Three, Chapter Sixteen of Bonaventure, a Prose Pastoral of Acadian Louisiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bonaventure, a Prose Pastoral of Acadian Louisiana by George W. Cable. Part Three, Chapter Sixteen The Outlaw and the Flood. What suffering it costs to be a coward! Some days before the crevasse occurred, he whom we know as the pot-hunter stood again on the platform of that same little railway station whence we once saw him vanish at the sight of Bonaventure des Champs. He had never ventured there since, until now. But there was a new station agent. His Indian squaw was dead. A rattlesnake had given her its fatal sting, and the outcast, dreading all men and the coroner not the least, had, silently and alone, buried her on the prairie. The train rolled up to the station again as before. Claude's friend, the surveyor, stepped off with a cigar in his mouth to enjoy in the train's momentary stay the delightful air that came across the open prairie. The pot-hunter who had got rid of his game ventured near his former patron. It might be the engineer could give him work whereby to earn a day's ready money. He was not disappointed. The engineer told him to come in a day or two, by the waterways the pot-hunter knew so well, across the swamps and prairies to Bayou Terbonne and the little courthouse town of Homa. And then he added, I heard this morning that somebody had been buying the swampland all around you out on Lake Cadouache. Is it so? The Acadian looked vacant and shook his head. Yes, said the other, a Madame Beausoleil or somebody. What's the matter? All aboard, cried the train conductor. The fellow turned pale, said the surveyor, as he resumed his seat in the smoking-car, and the landscape began again to whirl by. The pot-hunter stood for a moment, and then slowly, as if he stole away from some sleeping enemy, left the place. Alarm went with him like an attendant ghost. A thousand times that day, in the dark swamp, on the wide prairie, or under his rush thatch on the lakeside, he tortured himself with one question. Why had she, Zosephine, reached a way out from Carancro to buy the uncultivable and primeval wilderness round about his lonely hiding-place? Hour after hour the inexplicable problem seemed to draw near and nearer to him, a widening, tightening, dreamlike terror that as it came silently pointed its finger of death at him. He was glad enough to leave his cabin next day in his small swift pirogue, shotgun, axe, and rifle his only companions, for Terbonne. It chanced to be noon of the day following, when he glided up the sunny terbun towards the parish seat. The shores of the stream have many beauties, but the Acadians' eyes were alert to anything but them. The deep green waxen-leaved casino hedges, the hedges of Cherokee rose, and sometimes of rose and casino mingled, the fields of corn and sugar-cane, the quaint railed floating bridges lying across the lazy bayou, 
the orange groves of aged giant trees their dark green boughs grown all to a tangle with well-nigh the density of a hedge and their venerable trunks hairy with green-gray lichens the orange trees again in the dooryards with neat pirogues set upon racks under their deep shade the indescribable floods of sunlight and caverns of shadow the clear brown depths beneath his canoe or at the bottom the dark waving green-brown tresses of water-weeds these were naught to him but the human presence was much and once when just ahead of him he espied a young sun-bonneted woman crouching in the pouring sunshine beyond the sod of the bayou's bank itself but a few inches above the level of the stream on a little pier of one plank pushed out among the flags and reeds pounding her washing with a wooden paddle he stopped the dip of his canoe paddle and gazed with growing trepidation and slackening speed at the outer end of the plank the habitual dip of the bucket had driven aside the water-lilies and made a round glassy space that reflected all but perfectly to him her busy young downcast visage how like just then she lifted her head he started as though his boat had struck a snag how like how terribly like to that young zosephine whose ill-concealed scorn he had so often felt in days, in years, long gone, at Carancro. This was not, and could not be the same, lacked half the necessary years, and yet, in the joy of his relief, he answered her bow with a question, whose was yonder house? She replied in the same Acadian French in which she was questioned, that there dwelt, or had dwelt, and about two weeks ago had died, Monsieur Robichaud. The pot-hunter's paddle dipped again, his canoe shot on, and two hours later he walked with dust-covered feet into Homa. The principal tavern there stands on that corner of the courthouse square to which the swamper would naturally come first. Here he was to find the engineer but as with slow diffident step he set one foot upon the corner of the threshold there passed quickly by him and out towards the court-house two persons one a man of a county court-room look and with a handful of documents and the other a woman whom he knew at a glance her skirts swept his ankles as he shrank in sudden and abject terror against the wall yet she did not see him he turned and retreated the way he had come, nothing doubting that only by the virtue of a voodoo charm which he carried in his pocket he had escaped, for the time being, a plot laid for his capture. For the small, neatly robed form that you may still see disappearing within the courthouse door, beside the limping figure of the probate clerk, is Zosephine Beausoleil. She will finish the last pressing matter of the Robichaux succession now in an hour or so, and be off on the little branch railway, whose terminus is here, for New Orleans. When the pot-hunter approached Lake Catouache again, he made on foot, under cover of rushes and reeds taller than he, a wide circuit and reconnaissance of his hut. 
while still a long way off he saw lighted by the sunset rays what he quickly recognized as a canoe drawn half out of the water almost at his door he warily drew nearer presently he stopped and stood slowly and softly shifting his footing about on the oozy soil at a little point of shore only some fifty yards away from his cabin his eyes peering from the ambush descried a man standing by the pirogue and searching with his gaze the wide distances that would soon be hidden in the abrupt fall of the southern night the pot-hunter knew him not by name but by face the day the outlaw saw bonaventure at the little railway station this man was with him the name the pot-hunter did not know was st pierre the ambushed man shrank a step backward into his hiding-place his rifle was in his hand and he noiselessly cocked it he had not resolved to shoot but a rifle is of no use until it is cocked while he so stood another man came into view and to the first one's side this one too he knew despite the soft hat that had taken the place of the silk one for this was tarbox the acadian was confirmed in his conviction that the surveyor's invitation for him to come to homa was part of a plot to entrap him while he still looked the two men got into the canoe and st pierre paddled swiftly away the pot-hunter let down the hammer of his gun shrank away again turned and hurried through the tangle regained his canoe and paddled off the men's departure from the cabin was in his belief a ruse but he knew how by circuits and shortcuts to follow after them unseen, and this he did until he became convinced that they were fairly in the company canal and gliding up its dark colonnade in the direction whence they had evidently come. Then he returned to his cabin and with rifle cocked and with slow, stealthy step entered it and in headlong haste began to prepare to leave it for a long hiding out, he knew every spot of land and water for leagues around as a bear or fox would know the region about his den he had in mind now a bit of dry ground scarce fifty feet long or wide deeply hidden in the swamp to the north of this lake how it had ever happened that this dry spot lifted two or three feet above the low level around it had been made whether by some dumb force of nature or by the hand of men yet more untamable than he had never crossed his thought it was beyond measure of more value to him to know by what he had seen growing on it season after season that for many a long year no waters had overflowed it in the lake close to his hut lay moored his small centreboard lugger and into this he presently threw his few appliances and supplies spread sail and skimmed away with his pirogue towing after his loaded rifle lay within instant reach by choice he would not have harmed any living creature that men call it wrong to injure but to save himself not only from death but from any risk of death rightful or wrongful he would not through courage but in the desperation of frantic cowardice have killed a hundred men one by one 
By this time it was night, and when first the lugger, and after it was hidden away the pirogue, had carried him up a slender bayou as near as they could to the point he wished to reach, he had still to drag the loaded pirogue no small distance through the dark, often wet and almost impenetrable woods. He had taken little rest and less sleep in his late journeyings, and when at length he cast himself down before his fire of dead faggots on the raised spot he had chosen, he slept heavily. He felt safe from man's world, at least for the night. Only one thing gave him concern as he lay down. It was the fact that when, with the old woods habit strong on him, he had approached his selected camping-ground, with such wariness of movement as the dragging pirogue would allow, he had got quite in sight of it before a number of deer on it bounded away. He felt an unpleasant wonder to know what their unwilling boldness might signify. He did not awake to replenish his fire until there were only a few live embers shining dimly at his feet. He rose to a sitting posture, and in that same moment there came a confusion of sound, a trampling through bushes, that froze his blood and robbed his open throat of power to cry. The next instant he knew it was but those same deer, but the first intelligent thought brought a new fear. These most timid of creatures had made but a few leaps and stopped. He knew what that meant. As he leaped to his feet the deer started again, and he heard to his horror, where the ground had been dry and caked when he lay down, the plash of their feet in water. Trembling he drew his boots on, made and lighted a torch, and in a moment was dragging his canoe after him in the direction of the lugger. Presently his steps too were plashing. He stooped, waved the torch low across the water's surface, and followed the gleam with his scrutiny. But he did so not for any doubt that he would see, as he did, the yellow flood of the Mississippi. He believed, as he believed his existence, that his pursuers had let the river in upon the swamp, ruin whom they might, to drive him from cover. Presently he stepped into the canoe, cast his torch into the water, took his paddle, and glided unerringly through a darkness and a wild tangle of undergrowth, large and small, where you or I could not have gone ten yards without being lost. He emerged successfully from the forest into the open prairie, and, under a sky whose stars told him it would soon be day, glided on down the little bayou lane, between walls of lofty rushes, upon which he had come in the evening, and presently found the lugger as he had left her, with her light mast down, hidden among the brake canes that masked a little cove. The waters were already in the prairie, as he boarded the little vessel at the stern, a raccoon waddled in noiseless haste over the bow, and splashed into the wet covert of reeds beyond, if only to keep from sharing his quarters with all the refuge-hunting vermin of the noisome wilderness, the one human must move on. 
he turned the lugger's prow towards the lake and spread her sails to the faint cool breeze but when day broke the sail was gone far and wide lay the pale green leagues of reeds and bulrushes with only here and there a low willow or two beside some unseen lagoon or a sinuous band of darker green where round rushes and myrtle bushes followed the shore of some hidden bayou the waters of the lake were gleaming and crinkling in tints of lilac and silver stolen from the air and away to the right and yet farther to the left stood the dark phalanxes of cypress woods thus had a thousand mornings risen on the scene in sight of the outlaw numberless birds fluttered from place to place snatching their prey caroling feeding their young chattering croaking warbling and swinging on the bended rush but if you looked again strange signs of nature's mute anguish began to show on every log or bit of smaller drift that rain-swollen bayous had ever brought from the forest and thrown upon their banks some wild tenant of the jungle hare or weasel cat otter or raccoon had taken refuge sometimes alone but oftener sharing it in common misery and silent truce with deadly foes for under all that expanse of green beauty the water always abundant was no longer here and there but everywhere see yonder reed but a few yards away what singular dark enlargement of stem is that near its top that curious spiral growth growth it is a great serpent that has climbed and twined himself there and is holding on for the life he loves as we love ours and see on a reed near by him another and a little farther off another and another and another where were our eyes until now the surface of the vast break as far as one can see such small things is dotted with like horrid burdens and somewhere in this wild desolation in this green prospect of a million deaths waiting in silence alike for harmful and harmless creatures one man is hiding from all mankind End of Part 3, Chapter 16